Welcome to Movable Dough. This is Steve Danielson. Join me as I interview and promote living composers. In this series of interviews, I talk with composers about their musical journeys, their past successes and setbacks, and their current projects. For more information about this podcast, as well as a complete archive of episodes, please visit sdcompose.com slash movabledoe. Hey, this is Steve. Thanks for joining me for this episode of Movable Dough. My guest today is Dr. Ellen Gilson-Voth. Ellen is an active composer, conductor, educator, and keyboard artist. She has works published by Oxford University Press, ECS Publishing, Colavoce, Santa Barbara Music Publishing, and just recently was added to the Graphite Publishing's catalog of composers. Recently, Ellen was the winner of the Cincinnati Camerata Composition Prize with her piece Above Gravity and the Michigan Choral Commission Consortium with the piece Seeing the Same Stars. Currently, she is the artistic director for the Farmington Valley Chorale based in Simsbury, Connecticut. Ellen Voth, thank you for joining me today on Movable Dough. Thank you so much. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Thank you for inviting me. All right, well, first of all, congratulations on being added to the list of composers on Graphite Publishing. Uh, I interviewed Jocelyn Hagen and Tim Tkach on the last season of Movable Dough and know their high level of musicianship. So it is such an honor to be part of the, the work that they are doing. Yes, I'm, I'm thrilled to be getting to know them and the whole group of composers that are aligned with, with Graphite. And I think through a time like this, in this pandemic, we're all finding new ways to reach out and collaborate. <laughs> and it's, it's such a bright spot through this time. So I'm, I'm delighted to be on board. For sure. Well, let's, let's go back a little bit. When was, I'd like to know what your first piece was that you had published. First piece was There's a River, mm -hmm. a song setting uh, that was published by ECS Publishing. And it wasn't my first attempt. I, I was looking at the questions you had sent and I had contacted publishers for other pieces. Um, and early on my first attempts, my well-meaning attempts <laughs> and, uh, it really, if I have any advice for any newer emerging composers who are listening, it would be that the race goes to those who persevere and to focus on honing your voice and your craft and not to compose to publish, but to compose to have something to say mm -hmm. and to say that with integrity and commitment and with the most sophistication that you can and to write in a way that is magnetic for potential singers and audience members, and then the rest will follow. So that would be my advice to those starting out. But I, I am grateful for the, the open door that ECS created and then the, to be aligned with Oxford, with Santa Barbara, with Colavoce, and now with Graphite. Yeah, so you've been published by many different publishers. How do you go about finding the right piece to get to the right publisher at the right time? Or is it just sort of, I have a piece and I'm going to just sort of get it to someone? How do, you, how do you go about that process? Well, initially I was fortunate to meet some of the publishers directly, whether through a reading session or through a workshop. I'm thinking particularly right now of the Lehigh Choral Composers Forum, which I attended years ago and had at the time been co-sponsored by Oxford University Press. So that face-to-face that -face contact had a real impact. I think the process now is very different, of course, because we have access to so many points of, of information about publishing houses, the works, they release their personalities, like we all have personalities, publishers and publishing houses have their own 
personalities and knowing your own works and which ones will most resonate with the, the personalities of, of these different publishers. And so it's a process certainly, but it, it comes as the longer you're in the choral art, you learn to, to distinguish these different shades and you, it's, it's a wonderful opportunity, a win-win, right? Because we, we all are so enmeshed in this network and need one another in the same way choirs are so dependent upon publishers and vice versa. And so as much as we can be um, enriching each other and helping each other succeed, particularly through a time like this. And so I'm grateful to, to have these many different um, publishing arrangements, but also to be able to contribute positively to the importance of it and the need for high standards in the profession. Mm -hmm. So speaking of the profession, when, when did you decide that you wanted to be a composer? Where did that happen in your progression? You know, it's interesting. I, I think back to my first pieces from late elementary school, early middle school. I'm not sure I would attach my name to <laughs> But I'm fortunate that I was in an environment that was fertile and open to me being creative in my first attempts. And so it, it came about really very gradually. I was fortunate to be encouraged to compose by my high school choral director, took taking an independent music theory class with him. And he definitely lit a spark in an assignment he gave me uh, at the end of my sophomore year. And then it just grew. He trusted me to write a piece for my high school choir. And then just on it went. And been composing continuously and then it's been really in the recent years as as the projects have grown and the opportunities and I'm grateful for all for all of them that it's it's um, emerged to be the large role that it is yeah, well thinking back even further you mentioned your early compositions where did your music education begin were you taking piano lessons as a child or or where did that start it was piano lessons and you know it's interesting i was i came upon a quote of kodai who was asked about music education he was saying nine months before the birth of the mother which i thought was the private <laughs> and i think about the the impact of generations and how i'm grateful that i lived not far from my grandparents in new jersey they were in neighboring towns my grandfather came off into our house to play the piano in our basement and i have vivid memories of that so just being around that wash of sound. It was very ragtime influenced, popular music of the day. And I, I still remember some of those, of those fragments that, that he would play um, in our basement years ago. So I'm grateful for those memories and then for the opportunity to take lessons from a local teacher and sing in a small children's choir at my church in very, very simple, humble, circumstances and beginnings, but it was fertile soil. Mm -hmm. And it was soil that was open. You know, there, there was no pressure, there was no agenda, there, there were no, there was no professional musical network. I, it just emerged. And as it was emerging then, I'm grateful because I had a lot of voices of confidence around me, which, uh -huh. which had an impact too. So what sort of music were you listening to as a, as a teenager as you were going through that emergence? Oh, all kinds. I, I remember even earlier being over at my other grandparents' house and, and hearing one of those classical medley albums and 
and uh, listening to a fragment of Bach air from Sweet and D, and I couldn't get enough. I just could not get enough of that moving bass line. I, you know, I think I wore out the record. It was a record. I'll date myself. <laughs> but I probably wore it out that day, you know. And then on the other side, you know, I heard a lot of the popular music of the time and, you know, con you know some contemporary, you know, artists you know, some Christians, some pop, you know, all the, the music that was kind of flooding, flooding the airwaves at the time. And uh, it all, you know, it, all those ideas, whatever the genre, they, they percolate and you start to kind of get a sense of what, what draws in a singer, what draws in uh, a listener, what gives emotional impact, mm -hmm. all percolating at that time. Yeah, they become tools that you can use later. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned your high school choir teacher who who is encouraging you to compose. So thinking about all your music teachers that you've had, what's, what specific lessons do you remember learning from them that you still see manifest in your music today? You know, I can think of specific pieces or specific technical skills. I think most of all, it was their attitude toward music. Mm -hmm. In the case of my high school choral director, it was his commitment to excellence and inspiring us towards excellence for, in particular. And across the board, I would say the attitude towards people. Um, there, there was a, a, I was fortunate that they, many of them had a real trust in the seeds that they saw that were sprouting in me and were watering them and um, coaching them. And I, that sort of intent, you know, my, whether it was my piano teacher who made arrangements to get me to a competition of some kind, you know, their decisions to invest and, and pour into that made a real impact. And I think about that for, you know, how is it that we nurture potential around us? How do we nurture the, the potential of the next generation? So I would mm -hmm. say their, their attitude is, and their commitment is one of the things I remember most clearly, even more than a specific lesson about a fingering or a, a vocal technique. Yeah, I can relate to that. My, my band director, I was in band in high school. Uh, my band director just instilled this love of music and of performing. And I, I still cherish that to this day. So, you know, I've talked with composers who feel that they draw inspiration from their music that they write from, from nature, from social justice issues, or some from necessity. What would you say that one of the inspirations is for your music that you write? I would say really two streams. One, maybe a specific text I'll, I'll mention later on in our our podcast about a text of Emily Dickinson that mm -hmm. really hit home to me. Um, so sometimes it's, it's the text itself. And then other times I would say it may not be a, a single source of inspiration, but something about our human experience, some story that speak, can, we could speak to all of us at many different ages and stages of life, some personal journey that someone went through that needs to be heard. So I wouldn't say in my case that it's that it's only nature or only social justice or only out of personal um, necessity. It, it, it really 
there's it's a wide range depending on the um, the circumstances, but in general, I would say the thread is human experience. That the that as I write, the point of the piece isn't for me at least, and and others are going to be far more gifted in in their music entertaining. But I would say in my case, what's really motivating me is how can this inspire? How can this lead us to deeper thought? How can it lead us to more reflection? How can it lead us to be better people? That that's what motivates my work. Yeah. Yeah, I, I can hear your influence as a music educator as you talk. I can see you wanting to teach these uh, these ideas to your students. I, I know you've taught lots of courses on on choral methods, ear training, voice, piano, composition. How do you think your work as a music educator influences the way you think about composition? Yeah, and, and thank you so much. I love this this question, and it brings up to mind a book of Leonard Bernstein about the infinite variety of music that I thought of many times. You know, and he begins one of those um, broadcasts from years ago, yeah. and and reads 12 different words, completely unrelated, eat, toothbrush, and you know, all the kinds of things. And then he says, okay, now imagine the composer. All we have is, you know, the 12 notes of the chromatic scale. He said, but lo and behold, look what we can create. And then he goes on to, to give examples of so, do, re, mi. So then he says, here's one. We've got some handle and then right, we've got Strauss and everything in between. And he said, that's what's possible. Four notes, and you can create different universes from those four notes. So the idea of, of helping students understand what is possible, that composing isn't only for certain people for whom the muse has magically descended mm -hmm. upon them, that it's an attitude towards the building blocks. Yeah. With practice and with skill development and with commitment, you can learn that. And that's when the world starts to open up. That when, when the inner hearing becomes the ultimate test of our skill and our learning, and then how we demonstrate that, suddenly that revolutionizes how we look at music. We don't just see it as as something that someone else's did that we have to recreate. But then when we're actually a part of the creative process. So that would be one piece. But the other thing I would say is that as a conductor, I've been very committed to creating opportunities for emerging composers to have their music sung and critiqued. And I think that piece is important. Um, for years, I served as artistic director of a professional choir in the greater Springfield area. And we did some workshops where composers would come in and we would sing and, and critique their works. And, and so the, the idea of, the, of being able to give impact, uh, insight as the music is being formed and to be able to contribute in that way, I think that's very powerful all the way around. It really brings together performer and composer in a, in a different, um, more, um, lively and integrated way. Is there a, an example from uh, a recent collaboration with a composer that you can remember that had a, a, a meaningful impact on you and the choir? Oh, I'll have to think about that. Um, I think 
in, in the cases of those workshops, I, I remember um, learning so much from each of the voices that were coming in. And we had, I, the one thing I can remember, so we had an incredibly diverse group in, in one of those workshops and, and the respect and the spirit of collaboration was so, was so apparent. That was very energizing. That's one thing I, I would say that does stay with me even more than the specific pieces. Although um, I remember the, the, the Hebrew piece that, um, you know, and looking at that from, you know, examining it from aspects of language and harmonic um, expression, you know, that might be one specific musical memory but as a general experience, the, the support that was shared across the board with such so many diverse voices coming together, that was very inspiring. Fantastic. So Ellen, what do you do when you're not doing music? <laughs> yeah, I, I'm sure music occupies a huge part of your life, but what, what are your hobbies? What do you like doing? Well, I enjoy traveling a lot um, and enjoy traveling with my family my husband and daughter, although of course right now through this time, that's very much been in hiatus, but uh, before COVID and then certainly we're hopeful for life post pandemic for that to resume. I also enjoy water sports, sailing, boating, kayaking. I spent many summers in the Adirondacks, so I really enjoyed lake life particularly. Uh And so I find that's fueling and time in nature. I would say in general, just getting out and breathing some fresh air and walks and, and, you know, seeing new things in nature. I think my, my lens on nature is different now, having uh-huh. had this much time and at home without the usual rhythms of going to rehearsals and concerts sure. and conducting and that, that life. I think my awareness is different. If you could travel anywhere today, if we weren't in a pandemic and you could go somewhere, where would you go? Oh, there's so many places <laughs> I love to go. I hear rave reviews of the Canadian Rockies. Never uh-huh. been there. Um, I'd enjoy seeing Alaska. I've not been to Australia, New Zealand. You know, I see all these great sailboat races <laughs> happening. And, and so, you know, there are lots of places I, I would enjoy. And I've been fortunate to be able to do some travel in, in Europe and in the, in the Middle East, but certainly want to do more. All right. Well, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we will listen to some of Ellen's compositions. Welcome back. I'm talking today with Ellen Gilson-Voth. Let's begin today with Today I Will. So as I understand it, this piece was built upon the question, how would you finish the sentence, today I will blank? So can you tell us about how you constructed this piece based on the answers you received to that question? Yes, and I have to credit Westminster Choir College because the idea really came from a presentation that was given at National ACDA in 2017, where Joe Miller and Ann Sears came together and talked about their Today I Will project, which had come out of their 2017 tour concerts in which singers and audience members were asked to complete that sentence. And as I listened and watched their presentation, I thought, I'm wondering if there's a composition in here. So contacted Anne following the conference and said, would it be acceptable to you to share those responses? And 
get, I, I, would, I have the idea of a piece, but I'd like to spend time with the web of responses. So the responses ranged, you know, there's such a range from very specific, I will finish my homework for blank, <laughs> to uh, much bigger and more cosmic statements. So as I looked through them, I marked the ones that I thought were the most rich for a composition and then started to group them. So in this composition, the beginning ones are very specific about our immediate surroundings, looking up to the sky, feeling our feet upon the ground, and then not to forget to dream. So there's, there's the overtone of something bigger, but it's about our immediate surroundings at first. Then it moves on to listening and surrounding ourselves with beauty, dropping a bucket down a deep well, bringing it up full of hope. So there's visual connected to physical, tactile, hearing, really employing the senses in the beginning. Then the middle section really pairs outward actions with values. So we might smile at a stranger or get on the floor and play with my daughter or call a loved one to say what they mean. And, and then in the middle of those bigger picture ideas, take courage, choose peace. Then the final statements, and these were the ones that stood out to me that I knew would be best positioned towards the end. I will sing only from my soul. I will breathe in and illuminate the wonders of God and add my own notes to the great choir of humankind. And I read wow. that and thought, that is Walt Whitman-esque right there. Yeah, and read that, that one, read that one again. That was I, amazing. I will breathe in and illuminate the wonders of God and add my own notes to the great choir of humankind. Wow, that that is intense right and there. It is. And I as I as this was taking shape, I thought this is so applicable for so many situations, new beginnings, um, fresh starts, aspirations, you know, that you could take this text and, and apply a piece like this. So then it came together in, in the winter of 2018. Then in 2018 to 19, for that academic year, I was guest faculty at Western Connecticut State University in Danbury. So the university choir I was conducting premiered the piece and we were able to do a recording and then Gratefully, ECS Publishing adopted it. So I'm delighted that it's being shared through them now. All right. Well, let's take some time and we'll listen to Western Connecticut State University Choir performing Today I Will.
Next, let's move to Across the Empty Square. First, I have to say how fortunate I think you are to have gotten a recording of this piece already in 2021 by the socially distanced and masked University of Minnesota singers. Uh, but beyond that, I love the imagery in this piece of keeping the windows open so people can talk together. Uh, you know, I've been drawn lately to texts and pieces that talk about bringing people together. You know, what were you thinking as you were writing this piece? Well, first, the credit goes completely to Richard Hendrick, Franciscan friar in Ireland. And you may recall that his poem, Lockdown, began circulating wildly on social media last March. So now a year ago, it was picked up by Anderson Cooper of CNN, posted, reposted, and it was a very thoughtful poem about the lockdown and you know, the experiences, as, even as these things are happening, these bright spots emerging. And then the last section, open the windows of your soul, though you may not be able to touch across the empty square, sing. And I read that and thought, there is so much music in this. <laughs> so I did a search. I had no idea if my email was success, would be successful, but I reached out to him, said I'm a composer in Connecticut in the United States and wondering if you would grant permission for me to adapt some of your text into a composition. And he so graciously replied right away that I would have permission. So I was moving towards a deadline of early June, which is always good for composers to have deadlines. <laughs> Inspiration with a deadline is an advantage. So submitted it and then um, was very grateful. It was a finalist in the 2020 ACDA Brock competition for professional composers. And then it was in my conversation actually with, with Professor Kathy Salzman Romy of University of Minnesota about a different project. I was inviting her to be a guest on a virtual series I was doing with Mike Crowell in Connecticut. In the process of talking with her, the this piece came into our conversation. She listened to it and then was very gracious to bring it into her work with her singers this year for a virtual premiere in December and then a live recording in the hall early this year. So the process of writing this, this was early on in the pandemic and I, it was managing my own emotions and then the emotions that were all swirling around us in the world at that time was really quite a journey. The poem begins in the ex, the excerpts actually of the poem as I, as I put them together for this this piece, it begins with the image of people singing to each other across the empty squares. Mm -hmm. 
And then the, that's in, in the streets of Assisi. And then the next section goes into images in Wuhan. After so many years of noise, you can hear the birds. So again, lots of rich images in the beginning to bring in the singer and to bring in the audience, I find is a, is a very helpful device at the start of a piece. So the piece is really conducted like a palindrome because the beginning refers to a CC and at the end, the idea about not being able to touch yet you can still sing, that connects to the same image. And then the, the next two sections, kind of B and D, if you were to give them letters, refer to the Wuhan, you can hear the birds mm -hmm. and the sky is clearing now. So those are connected. And then the middle is really the crux of it and the way I devised it, and I, this was the section I wrestled with the most, the way I devised it is that I, I wanted to, to take the text suggestion of, yes, there is fear, but there need not be hate. There may be this, but there need not be this. To take a natural progression, a musical progression, which we approach inevitably, that this chord, this bass line leads to this, to this, to this, that stands in sharp contrast to the idea of the, that that doesn't have to mean that our actions have to follow each other. Isolation doesn't have to result in loneliness. Disease doesn't have to result in the sickness of the soul. And so that's really the, the centerpiece. So I bring all the voices together in a largely homophonic way there um, before the piece then opens and emerges to the hopefulness of our contact, though we may not be able to touch, that we can sing. So in the piece, I include some fragments of the Italian national anthem, as well as a Chinese folk melody. They're just in there as a backdrop. And then I took the theme of how can I keep from singing and wove that in around so that each section had excerpts of that hymn, no storm can shake my inmost calm. Since love is Lord of heaven and earth, how can I keep from singing? So that becomes uh, in many ways linking each section, much like the cantus firmus of a, of a larger work would do the same. Yeah. All right, well, we are going to now listen to Across the Empty Square performed by the University of Minnesota Singers.
Our third piece today is Above Gravity, which, as was mentioned at the top of the show, won the Cincinnati Camerata Composition Prize. So since this piece was just finished earlier this year, you haven't yet premiered this piece, correct? I have not heard it in voices. Okay. I've heard it in my head. <laughs> <laughs> well, since what we have today is a, a piano reduction of the voice parts, uh, could I read the poem and give our listeners a sense of what they're about to hear? Please. So this is an excerpt from the poem Blackbirds by Julie Codwallader Staub. Is that how you say her name? I have spent the better part of my life out of doors, but yesterday I heard a new sound above my head, a rustling, ruffling quietness in the air. When I turned my face upward, I saw a flock of blackbirds rounding a curve I didn't know was there. And the sound was simply all those wings against gravity, the whole flock taking a long, wide turn. We live and move and have our being here in this curving, soaring world, so that when even rarely we manage to unite and move together toward a common good, we can think to ourselves, this is how it's meant to be the whole flock taking a long, wide turn as if of one body and one mind. So what did you set out to say with these words through your music? Yes, and again, huge thanks to Julie for her permission. And again, another case of, of a composer reaching out <laughs> to a, a writer or a poet um, that's with us and for them, um, giving the permission for access to their work. So, you know, it's interesting as I was looking at different texts for this composition prize and the desire of the Cincinnati Camerata was for a text that would speak to the issues of our time, which of course can go in many different directions. But when I saw this poem, I thought, you know, this idea of, the, again, the visual of the blackbirds forming and being a part of something bigger than any one of them can achieve alone. And it's very interesting, actually, when you, when you do a search, you can find some fascinating footage of flocks of blackbirds in flight. And scientists describe the effect as murmuration, where it's an acrobatic display of birds swirling and creating these fluid formations in the air, almost as if they're defying the laws of nature. And that as the birds are responding to other movements of birds around them, they create these waves that actually allow them to communicate food sources and to protect themselves from predators mm -hmm. as they fly in mass. I, this was an, a whole new world for me, <laughs> learning about this. But I thought, you know, this idea of the whole flock taking a long wide turn, what if nature was our teacher? You know, how can we rise above the gravity of our self-absorption, of our division? How would our world be different if our priority was not just our own freedom or our own well-being, but the good of others? So I, I saw this text being able to speak into that, which is a desire we all share in one form or another. So the, again, the piece you know, has many different textures in it, moving together towards a more homophonic statement at we live and move and have our being in this curving, soaring world. And then the idea of the whole flock taking a long, wide turn, the voices really swirl around each other. Um, and the phrases are intended to almost suggest they are unfinished. So the beginning of it sounds like this. Thank you. 
the space that's built in also makes the piece conducive for live or virtual performance. And that was one thing I wanted to um, make possible, depending on what happens with live performance um, for the Camerata this year. I wanted it to be flexible for both a live, uh, live conditions and virtual conditions. Sure. So the rests help to accommodate that, but they also suggest something that's unfinished. The work is unfinished, but the idea of one motion going into another and the lines between them not being so um, clear or distinct, I wanted to reflect in the phrasing as, as the piece begins. And that then resumes again at the end. All right, well, we are gonna take some time here and listen to Above Gravity.
And lastly, another new piece of yours, I Had No Time to Hate. I was immediately drawn in even just by the title. Uh, with this text from Emily Dickinson, this piece is written for Treble Choir and will hopefully pre be premiered later this year. Uh, the world we live in right now seems to be driven by hate. <laughs> uh, is that what inspired you to set this text? You know, again, that line is so arresting and I've, I've been drawn to Dickinson's work over the years, of course, here in New England, um, we have access to the Emily Dickinson Museum in Amherst, Mass, not far from my home. And I've been fortunate to be able to visit there and to do Dickinson settings with my with choirs over the years. But I was drawn to this text again. That first sentence is so magnetic. The idea of a of a speaker referring in past tense, almost as if it's a reflection on life. I had no time to hate. Dash, of course, the dashes in Dickinson are so full of power and meaning because the grave would hinder me and life was not so ample. I could finish enmity. That's the first half. Then the next, nor had I time to love, but since some industry must be the little toil of love, I thought be large enough for me. And what I took from that was, you know, our whole sense of time has been upended through this pandemic. You know, we think of things we were doing last March. I, I don't know if this is your experience as well, but I think it, it, that seems like a month ago and a decade ago, all at the same time. <laughs> our whole sense of time has been upended. And as we start to return to our rhythms, the pace is going to increase again. You know, we think of the, the flurry that many of us were living in the crazed pace of our world and events and responses and, and media blasts. And I, the idea that our time is precious, our time is limited. What do we really have the time to do? And you can choose hate, but you're not going to finish. Life isn't ample enough for you to finish the job but you can choose love, which is also an enormous choice. Since some industry must be, you have to make a choice, then the toil of love is large enough. And I thought how perfect and fitting when we think of all we've been going through through this year and division in our country and wounds that have been reopened and, and, and crisis and, you know, all of those layers, we have choices. As we look ahead to more normal patterns of living, the piece begins with um, a vocal line, very singable, and then the accompaniment. this idea of I have no time to hate, I'm busy, 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 busy. And then on the word hate, big dissonance. I have no time to hate. And then later, same thing as I have no time to, I have no time to love, I have no time to love. And then the music opens on the word love. Uh -huh. But since you have to make a choice, recognize that love is gonna be large enough. You're never going to exhaust what you can do. You choose the other, it's bigger than what you can accomplish. So, you know, think about the choice you make 
what industry you choose in the time that you do have. So it was, it was, that's a case when you think about influences on our lives as composers, that's a case where the text spoke. It wasn't so much um, a person or a situation. I saw a text that is so applicable that anyone listening can find a nugget of inspiration mm -hmm. in that. And that was what motivated me. And the decision to write it for treble voices, whether that be for youth choir, um, many different age levels, I think, from whom this piece could work and wanted to be flexible for different age levels. But the idea of voices suggesting youth that I, I don't have time, I'm busy, I, I'm, the, the wheels are turning. And then for things to come to a grinding halt when we realize the walls that come up against us once we're choosing hate mm -hmm. and yet the walls that then can come down when we make the choice of love and how we treat other people. Okay, well, we're gonna make the choice right now to listen to I Had No Time to Hate.
Well, Ellen, what are you working on right now that you can tell us about? Yes, well, I'm really grateful that I have several projects, both for the short term and for the longer term. I'm looking ahead to a commission from the Hart School University of Hartford, where I did my doctorate, and they are celebrating their 100th anniversary. So I'm writing a piece based on the text of James Holden Johnson for that project. I have a commission, very grateful to Constance Chase for her um, welcoming me to write a piece for the West Point Glee Club. And we'll be doing that over the coming months. I have a project through Consortio, which is a platform that was launched by Paul Rudoy for composers and choirs to find each other in the process of, of giving birth to new projects. And so we have several choirs coming together for a, a piece I'm, I'm writing with a poet. It's gonna be very much a collaboration with her. And it's based on an amazing refugee story that's captured in the book, A Hope More Powerful Than the Sea. So that's gonna be for women's choir and piano, for treble voices and piano. And then I have two or three other projects that are percolating and no announcements yet, but they're coming, so stay <laughs> tuned. Very excited about those and the, the groundwork that's being laid for those which are very exciting. Awesome. If my listeners want to learn more about your music, where, where are you online? You can go to ellengilsonvoth.net. You can find me on also on Facebook and certainly glad to, to share works. And then any of the publishers that, that you mentioned earlier as well, my pieces are there and the links are there from the website also. Fantastic. Well, Ellen, it has been a pleasure to talk to you and get to know your music. I, I thank you for coming and joining me today on Movable Dough. Thank you so much. It's been a delight. My guest today was composer Dr. Ellen Gilson Voth. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe through your favorite podcast provider. To hear previous episodes, visit sdcompose.com slash movable dough. If you would like to continue this conversation or share your favorite music by Ellen Voth, join us on our Facebook group, Movable Dough Listeners, and follow us on Instagram at Movable Dough Podcast. If you have a recommendation for a future guest, please email me at movabledoe at gmail.com. This is Steve Danielson. Keep the music moving. <laughs>